Please turn also to the New Testament, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. So the text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. I'll begin reading from verse 12. This also is God's word. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for saving sinners such as Saul of Tarsus. And, Father, how you bring glory to your name because you take even the very worst that they might be objects uh, to declare your majesty and your power. That he who persecuted the church is now proclaiming the good news of the gospel and promoting the church. And Father, we marvel at such things. We marvel at your work in our lives, Father, that you have drawn sinners to yourself. Those who were living in misery, in darkness, in uh, malice, in spite. And Father, we pray in thanks that you have brought us into the kingdom of the one whom you love. Father, we can claim no merits of our own. And Father, we pray that you would continually open our eyes that we might see so great a salvation that you have shown to us. And Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. For he came to this world for this very purpose, that he might save sinners. And Father, we thank you that he did not fail, but that he is successful in the work that you have called him to do. We pray, Father, that this gospel would go forward with power that it would transform our lives. That if any are here who have, have not committed uh, their hearts to Christ, we pray that they would do so. We pray that you would do a mighty work. We ask, Father, that uh, your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted. And that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. of warfare, the, uh, the medical field uses a very simple method called triage. So the triage is you divide wounded people into three categories. 
uh, you have those, number one, who do not need immediate treatment, meaning that uh, if you do nothing with them, they're going to live on their own. They have some minor injuries, they'll be fine. Then you have the second group, which is uh, they, they are likely to, they're likely to live if you treat them. And uh, it would be imperative that you deal with those people. <clears throat> and then you have the third category, which is uh, in this situation, not having a, a uh, hospital, like a full-scale hospital, uh, not having that, they're going to die. So don't waste your time on them. When <clears throat> we come to the Christian life, it's as if Satan wants people to believe in such a thing. That he tries to persuade Christians that you are of that third category. That he tries to persuade us that Jesus came to save only the very best. And who are you to think that you could be saved by such a great king? Why would he condescend to such a level to deal with people such as, such as us? But you see, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel, because Satan takes what is true and promotes that which is false. So he's saying, how can you think that Jesus is so good and so kind and so loving that he would save all of his people? He only comes to save, like, you know, the very best. And those are the only people who have any hope. But I assure you, that is no gospel at all. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to save sinners, and he saves even the very worst and that what we see in this very text, that no one would despair, that we would understand the patience of our Lord Jesus Christ, is that he comes and that he saves as examples people such as the Apostle Paul, so that we might say, there is hope for me also, a great sinner, because he saved one such as the Apostle Paul, one who was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. So that... In this text, I want you to see that you are not left without hope, but that you are given a sure hope that Jesus saves to the uttermost all of his people. As we think about this text, here is 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, that these are, and I think Philemon too, these are referred to as the pastoral epistles. That the Apostle Paul is writing to uh, young men, his protégés. Uh, Timothy was one of them. And the topic of this, first, this book of 1 Timothy is about the proper conduct in Christ's church. The summary verse of this, of this entire letter, 1 Timothy 3.15. I write that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So what we'll see is that in this first chapter, he starts to address some of these things that are going on in the church. And uh, no church is perfect. Every church has its issues. And we cannot say that the church was entirely pure in the first century, because as you look at the matters that are addressed here in 1 Timothy... Uh, that are addressed in the book of Ephesians or the book of 1 Corinthians, you see that they're dealing with some fundamental issues. So here he begins in chapter 1 by addressing the matter of the false teachers. That in the first century uh, that Jesus had just left, that he died, he was raised and and he commissioned his his apostles uh, to do the work. 
and the work of church planting, the work of evangelism was going on. And all during this time, there were these false teachers who were trying to sell people on something other than this fundamental truth, this essential truth, this core teaching of God's word. You see that here in verse 3 and 4, that one of Timothy's roles was to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he's saying people are going to come in and they're going to tell you other things. Hey, uh, we've already covered that stuff and we need to move on from it. So here are some of the things that we need to focus on. And he's saying, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that at all. Right? These, these people are proof that they've gone, they've swerved off, off the righteous path. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So speculation, right? Where, hey, this is what the word of God is saying. That this is a trustworthy saying. So here, the Apostle Paul tries to establish, let's talk about what are these fundamental things. These are the things that you ought to focus on. And understand that your religion, your religion is only as good as you focus on this essential truth. That this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't change. That none of us graduates past it. None of us, uh, okay, I've got that essential, you know what, now I can move on to other things. No, we never do that. Someone who is mature in the faith, uh, a seasoned saint, is someone who masters this fundamental and sees how essential it is to all of life. So the truth that we see in this passage, the gospel's core message, that Christ came not to save saints, but foremost sinners, should bring him everlasting praise. The gospel's core message, that Christ came not to save saints, but foremost sinners, should bring him everlasting praise. We have three points here. The first is the gospel's lofty objective, in verse 15. Second, the gospel's lowly target, verse 16. And third, the gospel's immediate and eternal result, in verse 17. So, the first point, the gospel's lofty objective, in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Here, the Apostle Paul is having to deal with the false teachers that have come up in their midst. They have a spurious message. They try to focus on other things. That we're told that... uh, In verse 7, that desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either of what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Meaning that they seem uh, very sure, they seem very sincere, and and they are, uh, they're saying, you must believe this. So they have a lot of, uh, they have a lot of flair, they have a lot of confidence, but here the Apostle Paul is saying, they don't know what they're talking about. There's something other than the gospel upon which they want you to focus. In contrast to that, we have the Apostle Paul. He refers to Timothy as his true child in the faith. So here he's saying, Timothy, you are going to do uh, the good work. You're going to fight the good fight. That as long as you are contending for the gospel, that the Apostle Paul is as if he's saying, you will be sure to be on the, under the crosshairs of Satan. Because that's the very work, that's the very message he wants to oppose. That here, the false teachers 
uh, are told to stop what they're doing, that they are not to make trouble, that, the, uh, that Timothy was to remain there and to set in order these things. Here in verse 5, he makes it clear instead what they ought to focus on. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That we looked at last week, uh, the blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That we ought to seek purity, that we ought to uh, promote a good conscience, a clear conscience. And we ought to hold to the teachings uh, of the word of God with a sincere faith. That there ought to be sincerity, there ought not to be a duplicitous and underhandedness in the things that we hold to. That uh, the issue of false teachers is true then and is true now. There's always going to be people who come in. They're going to sell you on a different message. They're going to detour just slightly. You look throughout church history, right, that, that this, is, this has been bad. We're, we try to say, well, well, this is the gospel. No, 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 that is the gospel. And you look at it may not have a huge effect within a year or five years or ten years, but you look at one generation. You look at two generations, and then you start to see the tragic effect. One of the ways that you know this is that people still use the same terminologies, but the terminologies are stripped of all their meanings. Meaning that, hey, what I'm hearing, I'm hearing the right vocabulary, but the vocabulary means something completely different. They've redefined the terms. They've moved the goalposts. Here in today's passage, the Apostle Paul is establishing the core teaching of the Bible. There in verse 15, he uses this formulaic statement. The saying is trustworthy, or it's faithful, and it's deserving of full acceptance. Now, some of you might ask, well, wait a minute. Uh, I I thought everything in scriptures uh, are trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Well, it's like this. Well, are you to love your neighbor? Well, yes. Well, are are you to love your father? Well, yes. Are you to love your children? Yes. Are you to love your spouse? Yes. Are you to love Jesus Christ? Yes. Well, are all those true? Yes. But then are you to love Jesus most? Well, yes. So, so here he's saying that there's a hierarchy. There are, all the teachings of the Bible are true, that there's a hierarchy here. And he's saying this, this is the fundamental thing. It's altogether credible. This formulaic statement, uh, this is a trustworthy statement. It occurs five times in, in Paul's writings in these pastoral epistles. And it's deserving of full acceptance, meaning that it's worth every man's full embrace, that your affections ought to be with it. That we ought to embrace it entirely. So this is what Christ did. It just addresses the matter of why Christ came. That Christ came into the world to save sinners. So this is Christ coming into the world. It's Christ coming into the fallen world, specifically. It's a sinful world that he came to. That Jesus came into this world, not in a spaceship... He came into this world by uh, being born of a virgin, that he took upon himself human flesh. And that some other religions, other people would say, well, how can God even become a man? Just try to imagine that, that he has to deal with all the things that went on. That's impossible. Well, with God, God, all things are possible. That Jesus uh, would would dwell, would be, would take upon himself human flesh, that he is entirely God, yet also entirely man. You think about what he came to do. 
found in his name, Matthew 1.21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Think about this very matter of saving. Christ's purpose in coming uh, was to save sinners. It wasn't to provide uh, some form of savability to all men. So Christ didn't come to make all men savable. That he didn't come to, to save all men partially, but no man fully. He didn't come to uh, merely to enrich those who are materially poor. So he didn't come to say, hey, you know what your real problem is? Is that you're poor and I've come to enrich you. No, that wasn't the issue. We know that because Jesus was poor. He, he, his crib was a manger. You think about the essential things that if, if God was going to provide that which is good for his son, Jesus Christ, that he would have provided him something better if that was absolutely essential. But he didn't because it wasn't essential for his life, for his well-being. That Jesus didn't come to educate those who are illiterate and unlearned. Because we see even among his apostles that in the beginning of Acts, as they go about uh, preaching and teaching in the temple, that it was the learned Jewish scholars who, had, who, who were skilled uh, lawyers that they acknowledged that these men that Jesus had taught, who were fishermen, that they were unlearned, meaning that they weren't highly educated, yet they were preaching and teaching as those who had the authority of Jesus Christ, that Jesus had commissioned them to preach this message, yet they weren't uh, very well educated. They weren't more educated than the typical fishermen. And that Jesus didn't come merely to save the righteous. He didn't come to save the very best. That Jesus came to save each and every one the Father had given him. John chapter 6, verse 39 that Jesus said, this is the will of the Father, that of all that he has given me, I lose none, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus gives an accounting of all of these sheep. You think about his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. <clears throat> there, Jesus is about to check out. So he checked in, <clears throat> and then he was about to check out, and he's saying, God, you've provided me these sheep. Uh, these are his his disciples, and he's saying, I'm checking them all back to you, but this one, Judas, who's the son of perdition, who's, who's destined to be lost. So basically, Jesus is saying, you've checked them into me, I'm checking them back. One is gone, and that's Judas, but that's what you had planned. And so also, Jesus, when he comes, he comes to seek and to save that which is lost, that they might be found, that we might be found in Jesus Christ, and he will not lose even one. <clears throat> this is not a mere general truth. <clears throat> you think about this for a moment. <clears throat> Verse 15. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So people can believe this. <clears throat> oh yeah, Jesus came to die for sinners. But then the question is, is it personal? Well, do you believe that he came to die for you and to save you? Oh, oh, wait a minute. I, I thought you merely asked me, is it true that he came to die for sinners? Unless you and I are believing that Jesus died for me, then apparently you and I don't believe the message enough. You see, you look at 
the messengers that God could have sent. The angels are by definition messengers of God, that they are God's messengers. They bring the good news. That anytime there's some kind of significant thing happening, you have the angel Gabriel coming to talk to Mary. But you notice that God doesn't use angels to bring the message of the gospel. Because angels have no experiential knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The angels are perfect, but they fell. So some of them fell. And there is no opportunity for angels to be saved. So there were angels. Some of them fell. They became demons. And they have no experiential knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only humans who have heard this message and believe it and come to understand it. That when we talk about the good news of the gospel, God is using someone who typically is converted and can say, hey, this is good news to me. So that when we talk about this good news, it's not merely, hey, this is a general, this is a nondescript, impersonal good news. This is a personal good news for you and for me, that we have come to understand the good news of Jesus Christ, that he does save sinners. He saves such sinners as as you and as, as me. Perhaps, perhaps you should be asking the question, from what is Jesus saving us? <clears throat> from what is Jesus saving us? He's not saving us from our poverty. He's not saving us from merely uh, our unlearnedness. He's not saving us from social ineptitude. He's saving us from our sins. That's the whole point being mentioned here, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He saves us from the just condemnation that is due to us for our sins. He saves us from the wrath of God. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That we wait for Jesus for this very reason, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And typically, at this point, people start asking the question, well, what's wrong with God? Why is his wrath upon us? Why can't he just leave us alone? And, and this is where we have to realize, if we're thinking that way, we're asking entirely the wrong question. There's no problem with God. God is just. And that God will condemn sin. The problem is with us. You see, we, we're we so much the problem that we start to think the problem is somebody else. And it's not only those around us. It's actually, we, we, it gets so bad that we think the problem is actually God. Why can't he just leave us alone? <clears throat> Jesus comes to address that very problem. How God can be just and also the justifier is found in the truth of the gospel, that Jesus came to pay the price for sinners. That this indeed is this central message, that Christ came to save sinners. And it wasn't just a Jesus came to preach this message. He came to do something very specific. He came to live the perfect life. 
the life that none of us can live because we're all tainted with sin. And then he came to die on the cross. He came to die in your place, in my place. The very death that we deserve to die. That he paid the price for our sin. He lived the perfect life so that by faith you and I might believe this message. And that we might receive salvation so freely from God by his grace. That we believe upon Jesus Christ. His righteousness credited to us. And our sins put on his account when he died on the cross. That this is the central message of the Bible. And it is the, should be the central message, central truth of your life and of mine. In the Christian life, that God has never designed that this central message you and I would move on from. This good news of the gospel is good news when we first heard it. And it should be that refreshing, hope-filled good news every time you and I hear it. Every time we hear this message, that it should be good news to us. It's precisely those who think that they need to move on from the good news of the gospel, that these are the people who have missed the central message. These are what we're told in verse 4 and verse 5, that these are the ones who are the false teachers. They've completely missed it. They've started to think, well, uh, it's some of these other minutiae, some of these other things. Well, they in the church don't believe this, so I'm better than them because I believe it. And whatever that thing might be, we can fight about those things, and you think about, well, what is the purpose of the church? Is it to argue about those minutiae? The answer is no. Here, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that this trustworthy saying that's worthy of full acceptance is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That this message, essential truth, must never change. And it must be central to Christ's church. And when it is no longer central to Christ's church, then it's as if Christ has left the room, that he's gone. So this is the first point, the gospel's lofty objective. We have the second point, the gospel's lowly target, in verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So the question that you and I are probably thinking is, why was Paul the foremost or chief of sinners? Earlier in this chapter, he says that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church. And uh, in this version, it says, uh, an insolent opponent. Uh, other versions were translated as a violent man. Someone who is arrogant combined with an insolence. Uh, and this creates a dangerous person. So he's a blasphemer. He, he spoke against Jesus Christ. He denied the deity of Christ, that he was persecuting the church, that he had letters from, uh, from the high priest, and he was executing those letters. These were basically arrest warrants, that he, were, he was separating families, throwing people into prison, dragging off Christians to jail, that he was a violent man, that he did great harm to the church of Jesus Christ, 
In Mark chapter 9, verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him. It would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. So this is the Apostle Paul. Before he became the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus, that he was a Pharisee, that he was a Jew, a respected Jew, that he was circumcised on the eighth day, that he was a descendant of, from the tribe of Benjamin. And here we're told that he did things to harm Christ's church. And on the road to Damascus, it was Jesus who said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus took this personally. You're persecuting my people. You're actually persecuting me. He was also the chief of sinners because he was self-righteous. The self-righteous, some people think, well, these people are very religious and they're very respected. Well, that's exactly what Paul was. But he was filled with self-righteousness. And in so doing, he was rejecting God's testimony about them as false. So the self-righteous man says, hey, God, you've said this about me, that that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And the self-righteous would say, no, I haven't. You're right about some of the other people, but not me. So they're calling God a liar. The self-righteous don't need a savior. They they only need a little help from a friend, right? So you think about that that Beatles song, a little help from our friends, right? So Jesus, he's not my savior. He he just gives me this little boost, right? He gives me just that little bit of righteousness I need to to, to get over that hurdle. No. See, this is is a completely false view of Jesus. So this self-righteousness is one of the greatest sins. Notice also, even in Paul's writings, his changing view of himself. 1 Corinthians 15. He says that he is the least of the apostles. And then in Ephesians 3, 8, he calls himself the least of all the saints. And then here in 1 Timothy 1, 15, he calls himself the foremost or the chief of sinners. What about for you? How has, you, how has your view changed about yourself regarding who you are and what God has called you to be. You look at the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector that was converted. Notice that he makes no comparisons. It doesn't matter who else is in the room. He knows that, that God is present. Have mercy on me, a sinner. There's, there's only two people. There's Jesus Christ and there's that sinner. And he's saying... Jesus is perfect. I'm not. I'm in need of his mercy. Then you have the Pharisee. He comes in. And he starts making these comparisons. Right? Starts making these comparisons to that. I'm not. At least I'm not like that that Pharisee. Or that. that, Sorry. That tax collector. Over there. And here. All of these comparisons. Boil down. To this one message. this, This one truth that we're holding to. I'm not in as much need of God's grace as him or as them. They need God's grace more than I do. I don't need it as much. I only need a little bit. Just a little boost. Just a little help from my friend. That's all. See, with someone who is saved, with someone who is maturing the faith, those comparisons come to an end. All that's left is, is even as the Apostle Paul said, 
you know what? doesn't matter, my comparison with him. Does he need God's grace more than me? Who cares? We all need God's grace. And as you and I come to terms with our own sin, we realize we're desperately in need of God's grace. That's all that matters. Every man is in need of it. Every man is in need of it. In Psalm 51, verse 3, David, the psalmist, he is able to write this. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He's saying, here, I know the sin that comes out of my heart. It's those thoughts that enter my head. It's those desires that, that the Lord has said, these things are sinful. And you must stop them. You must stop their thoughts. You must stop talking about them. You must stop doing them. So it's not other people's sin. It's my sin that is ever before me. That if you and I can ever get past that, that we stop focusing on the sins of others, and we realize that we have abundant sins of our own, and that Christ paid for those sins, then we would stop making those comparisons. We realize, you know what? This is me. That Jesus died for sinners. And that I am the chief of sinners. That we'll say exactly as the Apostle Paul would say. We have also, in verse 16, a mention about Paul as an example. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That there would be an example such as Saul of Tarsus, that here was one who was a persecutor of the church. And it is to help those of us so that we might not despair. There's other examples too. You think about King David. That there's some similarity between the Apostle Paul, King David. That King David is described as a man after God's own heart. Yet we're told that he was an adulterer and a murderer. But God's good news that this gospel applied also to him. Turn also for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We have here a brief account about this first generation of Christians. First generation of Christians. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and following. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see here, Paul is not saying, oh, one or two or three of those things are not really sins. They're acceptable. He's not saying any of that. He's saying, you've committed those things. That's what you were. But he's saying, here, you've been washed. You've been sanctified. So we have a description of the people that were saved in this Corinthian church. This is what they once were. And he's saying, you've left those things. This described your life. And so also, an example such as this, that it should give us hope. It should give us hope that Jesus is not coming to save the very best. 
that he came to save even the very worst, that not one of his people will be lost. That this is an example to us on our bad days, that when Satan comes, this is how Satan comes. You think about the example of Joshua the high priest in in Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua the high priest, priest is supposed to have clean clothes, a clean turban, clean outfit, and Satan is accusing him, hey, he is unclean, he's dirty, look at him, he's filthy. And that's what Satan does, that, that's his job, that, that's his role, he, he's the accuser, he's the one who's constantly accusing and slandering us. And there's that question, is this not a brand, is this not a branch picked from a fire? So you have uh, wood that's put into a fire pit and it's set on fire and it's consumed. And the description is that this man Joshua, this priest, is as if he were a branch plucked from the fire. He, were, he was salvaged from the fire pit. It was true of him, but you realize, isn't that true of every one of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, that we're that brand plucked from the fire? That all in Adam sinned and fell, and that God, in, in sending his son... That he, he wasn't picking from the top of the heap. He was picking from the entire heap that was lost. Those who might be saved. And that we ought to say, well, this Jesus is picking from this, this mass that was lost. That in Adam, we all fell. And in Jesus, you and I are made righteous. That we ought to understand that this is an encouragement to you and to me. When we hear about examples such as the Apostle Paul, he was one who was a great sinner. Yet, if Jesus cannot save great sinners, then he is no savior at all. And that we ought to rejoice because Jesus is that great savior and that because of it, not one is lost. So this is the second point, the gospel's lowly target. We have also the third point, the gospel's immediate and eternal result in verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice here that the apostle Paul began this section with gratitude and praise. There in verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service. So he doesn't say, hey, it was obvious that I was the right person, had all the gifts for the job. No, he didn't say any of that. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. This gratitude expressed to God. He, he realizes his unworthiness. And he finishes in verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He begins and ends this section with gratitude and praise to God. When we think about our salvation, think about our salvation, it should be endless praise to our God. It should be endless praise to our God. Think about Ephesians chapter 1, as the Apostle Paul begins that letter, and how often it says, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Well, why did Christ save sinners? Why did He save particular sinners? And we can only say simply, because God is a merciful God. Because of the great love with which he loved us. We don't have any specific answer. There's no particular reason why he did what he did. It's because he is a merciful God. It's because he, his, his love abounded towards sinners. 
Praise to God, not praise for ourselves, should mark everything that we do. Everything that we have, everything that we are, it should be praise to God. You think about these titles that are mentioned. The King of Ages, or King Eternal. Throughout time, you have different rulers. They come and they go. And, and they come, and it seems like they're trying to do great things. Right? I remember various cases where people who, who didn't work at all in, in um, government... They come in with all these lofty ideas, and then they figure out how much red tape, how much corruption is there, and they, they, they went in all optimistic, and then they realized how, how bad it is, and how little they can get done. You know, there's many examples such as this. And they, they die, and new people come. But that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that Jesus is a king eternal, that his reign never comes to an end. That he is the one who is immortal. He's the one who is invisible that no one has seen or can see. And the only God. That Jesus is God. And that is how he lived the perfect life. That is how he has no sin is because he, has, he is God. And that this is how you can have a perfect sacrifice in a man is he must be God. And it's to him that we give honor and glory forever. When you think about what do we do, what do we do when we come to worship God at church? The immediate result, the immediate result of salvation is that we would be giving praise to God. That, that God would receive our praises. Lord, we thank you that you have shown mercy to us for sinners. That we have nothing to offer you other than our sin. And that Jesus paid the price for those sins. And that you should receive praise and honor from your people all the time. Everything that we have, everything that we've received, that we ought to give thanks to our God. Because we're unworthy recipients. You think about God's design. We're told that he chooses the worst. Mark chapter 5, verse 19. There was this man, the Gerasene demoniac. That he lived out among the tombs where no one wanted to be. That he was a naked man. That they chained him up. And that he would cut himself. That he inflicted harm on himself. They're very, very similar to what happens today. right? You think about people who go about piercing and cutting themselves. right? It's similar to this Gerasene demoniac who was possessed. And after he was changed, everyone must have known him. Everyone that lived in that area would have known. There's a, hey, by the way, if you're driving through, don't go to that that uh, gravesite over there because there's a crazy naked man running around. And here, we're told that after Jesus drove out these demons, that he was seated, clothed, and in his right mind. This man was completely changed. And this man begged Jesus, let me come with you. You've set me free. Everything you teach me, I want to learn. Jesus says, no, no, no. He says, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Meaning, Jesus is saying, hey, the people who know you, the one you once were, I want them to see that the man who was crazy and screaming and naked is now clothed in his right mind. That you might say, it is God who had compassion on me. And now I'm no longer the same man. I would still be self-inflicting harm. And I would still be crazy and naked if it wasn't for 
the perfect work of Jesus Christ and his mercy to me. So also, God calls us that we might be witnesses where we are. That we would be like the Apostle Paul telling others that we are the chief of sinners. And God had mercy on us and it's proof of his patience. Because he has patience with sinners. He bears with us. Long-suffering. Think about the eternal result. The immediate result is that in Christ's church that we will be here gathering for worship. We're praising God for his mighty work. We're praising him for a risen Savior. We're praising him for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're praising him for everything that we receive in our lives. And you think about eternally. What do we do? Eternally. We're praising God for eternity. Think about what the saints are doing in heaven. The worship of God in Christ's church on a Sunday is merely a foretaste of what we will do for an eternity in heaven. It's merely a foretaste. Being with God's people, this is a foretaste of the fellowship we will have eternally in heaven when sin will no longer divide us. Hearing the word, singing God's praises. You think about how we ought to view that then. It should change how we view church. It should change how we view sitting down to read God's word. Let me hear again that story about how Jesus saves sinners. What Jesus came to do. What he came to do in which he cannot fail to complete. You think about coming to church then. I've been asked, how many people who are dedicated golfers, if their tea time is you know, 5.30 in the morning or 6.15 in the morning. How many people are late for that? I don't know too many golfers who, oh, uh, my appointment was, uh, was 6.15 in the morning, but I show up uh, 6.30, 6.35, that, that's okay. No, these golfers are dedicated. And you think about people who go to the dentist, right? No one's excited to go to the dentist. Hey, sorry, I'm five or ten minutes late. I'm, I'm not excited to go to the dentist. Well, what about coming to church? Right? We ought to be here. That we ought not to be the last to come and then the first to leave. Right? That we ought to be here eager to worship our God. Because our God is worth worshiping. And that we ought to delight in His service. Because this is what we're going to be doing for an eternity. Giving thanks to the Lord. And giving Him honor and praise and glory. Because Jesus is worthy of it. And that we think about what Jesus came to do. That it is God condescending to the level of sinners. It's God meeting us at our need. And that we ought to praise him always. That we ought to tell others about this message. This Jesus whom I worship, he came to earth as a man. That he died in the place of sinners. That he had compassion upon sinners. This is the person I would have been if he didn't find me and save me. That this is the hope of eternal life. This is the hope for the forgiveness of sins. And that this message ought to be fresh. And it ought to be hopeful. And it ought to be awe-inspiring for us every time we hear it. That Jesus, he is the one who came to seek and to save that which is lost. And of all those that God has, yeah, God has given him, he's not going to lose even one. And that for that, we ought to rejoice. May we go to our God together.